The Catholic Church has become much more global, much less European, mm -hmm. much less white, much less uh, West-oriented. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss, and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up, talk a little bit about a road trip that we are currently on. And then later on in the pod, we sat down with Catholic theologian and historian, Professor Massimo Fijoli, as we talked to him about the current synod that is taking place within the Catholic Church. It's going to be a great episode, so stay tuned. Howdy there, Missy. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. And you? I'm tired. You're tired, so please do tell. Why are you so tired? We are two-thirds-ish of the way <laughs> through a cross-country road trip. Indeed we are. So our to update our listeners... Our younger son is moving to Boston. Yay! Right? Cheers. Exactly. <laughs> Abound. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> um, and so because of his work schedule back in Oklahoma and his work schedule in Boston, it just it worked out better for us to drive his car in all of his stuff. <laughs> Nicely played. Well played. And then he's going to fly out. So anywho, we so we are taking a road trip, having some fun along the way, and um are two thirds of the way through. So we've spent two full days in a car together and we're both still alive. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, we have not filed papers for divorce or anything as that such as No. Yet. So at this point our listeners may be thinking, wait we live in Oklahoma currently. Mm -hmm. Correct. We have one child in Los Angeles area. That is the West Coast. The West Coast. <laughs> we now are going to have the other child in Boston, the Northeast. That is the East Coast. <laughs> right. So what might one conclude about our parenting <laughs> when our kids <laughs> decided to go as far as they possibly can from us? Yeah. Is that a success? The only way it or... can make this worse is that if uh, our oldest would have been in Hawaii and our youngest would have you know, moved to London. <laughs> Maybe so. So audience, if you can just imagine... I'm gesticulating right now to show you on a map. Yeah, that's, where good, that's good for podcasting. Our kids are. <laughs> it's a good visual for podcasting. Anywho, but I have decided on this trip, I've complained so much about hotels that now the hotel gods are against me. Okay. Please, please elaborate. So this is happening now, like consistently. Mm-hmm. That we stay in a hotel mm -hmm. and we are awoken <laughs> at 5 or 6 a.m. Yes. 
with an alarm clock going off. Yeah, and whoever set that alarm clock, whether they be in Wisconsin or Nevada, well played, well played. Here's the thing. <laughs> I agree with you. And like 20 years ago, I'd have been like the last guy that stayed here set that alarm, right? <laughs> In the year of our Lord, 20 and 23, (laughs) who uses an alarm clock? I have the answer for you. No one. Therefore, it is a prank. I have decided that the hotel gods have heard our podcast and know my complaints and have said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to wake your bleep up anytime you're in a hotel at 5 a.m. when it's still too dark to see the alarm clock to be able to turn it off. So the best you can do at that time is to snooze it. And, uh, you know, to, to just leap onto this train that you're going down right now. <laughs> I mean, alarm clocks have been around for, I mean, the the digital alarm clocks, they've been around for decades, right? Okay, sure. Why can't they get a new sound for the alarm? It's still the same. <laughs> I, I don't know, because the answer to that is use your phone. <laughs> That's the answer. I'm telling you, no one uses a traditional alarm clock at a hotel anymore. You use your phone. Therefore, I contend that I have upset you have the, hotel upset gods. the hotel gods. For that, I apologize. And mm. a 10 a.m. alarm would be much preferred <laughs> on the hotel clock. Anywho, So we repent to the gods of Hilton, Marriott, and Hyatt. Yes, in particular. <laughs> um, so... Um, changing gears, uh, Thanksgiving was last week. It was. We had a great, we had two great Thanksgivings. We did. We had one with your family and one with my family. And I have no, well, that's not true, but I have no family drama to report no, from they, Thanksgiving. They actually were lovely. No arguments. Like no I said last week, brought it up, it I'm a little up. disappointed because I was so hoping for content. Although I did get some, <laughs> we'll circle back to that in a moment. Okay. Can't but I credit the success of our family Thanksgivings, plural, uh-huh. to the bartender. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I hope you didn't pull a muscle <laughs> patting yourself on the back. <laughs> because a good bartender knows who to overserve <laughs> and who to underserve. That is very true. And I will just say that whoever bartended our Thanksgivings did a phenomenal job. You know, so what is so funny about this is that in both your family's case and my family's case is that, you know, there was the usual who's going to bring, you know, the, the turkey or ham. The green beans, green the beans, stuffing, whatever. But it quickly, and I, when I mean quickly, like rapidly moved to, is Missy bringing the margaritas? Right. Okay, so this is strange to me because I did not grow up with a boozy no, Thanksgiving, no, nor not did you, no, right? No, not at all. And all of a sudden, this is a thing. So I don't know. I didn't complain. It was just like, <laughs> I am here to be of service. You're such a giver. I That's mean, right. You really are such a giver. I'm a giver. But that makes me think of, 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 we had a good friend that came over a few days before Thanksgiving and we were chit-chatting and she had the best quote about Thanksgiving that I just, I loved because tons mm-hmm. of family was coming in and they were getting stressed and she just said, you know, I really don't like my Thanksgiving interrupted with, 
people. (laughs) 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 I just thought... That is the best quote ever. So I have made note of that because sometimes I do understand that that is is, um, a thing. But I want to share with our listeners the best story that came out of Thanksgiving. Oh, we're all waiting with bated breath. And I'm going to call you out. Me? Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's back that train up. We we love, we meaning you, love to kind of call me out and, and, you know, throw some shade on me for my like fundamentalist background and hangups that I still have. Okay, so it's not just me. So let's recall a podcast that we had months and months ago where you and... Brian McLaren realized that you have this inner fundamentalist. Oh, and they're a match made in heaven. I'm just saying. They're still there. Exactly. So it's just I I don't know about Brian, but I still nurture mine just (laughs) enough. So I feel like people who know us, especially in real life, don't fully grasp that you also used to be pretty fundamentalist in your theology and your beliefs and your practices, correct? I still, I still have a paper from my college days where I had a professor, and I quote, Hey, slow down there, little rush. <laughs> 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 so yes, at one time I so was by the time a flaming I, fundamentalist. By the time I met you, you were had progressed to the point where you openly, and let me stress openly, um, spoke out against contemporary Christian music. Scandalous. And that I mean, that is likely what attracted me to you because oh, you could only that's the sweetest thing you've ever said to dislike me. Dislike Contemporary Christian music in secret, mm-hmm. in my mind, because I just, it's not that I didn't like any of it. I just really liked secular music. <laughs> right, I mean, right. I didn't understand why we had to hate secular music. Yeah. Anywho, you openly said, I don't like this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's heresy. And I kind of like that. Rebel without cause. <laughs> Anywho, so that brings me to my story today. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> At the end of Thanksgiving evening, we're sitting around and talking to your parents, and your mother brings up a story that I'm so excited to share. She said that you made her feel so bad about the Amish welcome sign (laughs) she had hanging in her house. You told her it was wicked. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and made her take it down because it was demonic and wicked. So tell us, Mitch, tell us about that sign. Well, <laughs> I, growing up in fundamentalist Baptist churches, was often told that anything that was symbolic of any type of, and, and, and don't misunderstand me, I don't think today that the Amish are you know, filled with witchcraft, but their culture kind of, there was something this, in the font you said was, was like something a with hex. The font. It wasn't, yeah. no, 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 no. I no mistake. Not throwing shade at Amish. It was something in the way that the words were written. Yes. That is like a hex sign or something. Right. But you also have to understand I attended and can I get a testimony on this? I attended churches where the youth minister would literally get an LP, which is vinyl for those uh, who know the record players these days. Tell me more. What's an LP? <laughs> <laughs> and take the record 
and physically play it backwards. Play it backwards. I remember that. And convince us that there were satanic lyrics. Well, yes. And then would take album artwork and look at the fonts and the artwork mm-hmm. and to convince us that there were devil horns or satanic symbols. Everywhere we looked, whether it was the toast we ate in the morning or the music we listened to late on Friday nights, was the devil was everywhere, and he was after you. So demons, I, yeah. I do recall, and that was very much my youth so, group upbringing, yes. upbringing as well. So there was the there was the symbols and fonts within the Amish community that had nothing to do with the occult or Satanism, but because of the tradition I grew up in, I was told that yes, that was satanic. So I called your mother to verify the story (laughs) (laughs) just to get my facts straight. Yes. And she said, no, she said, he didn't make me take it down. But she said, he made me feel so bad about it that I did take it down. She said, and I really liked that sign. (laughs) Mom, I know you're listening. I'm so sorry. Make dad go to the storage unit, which I know you still have that sign because you never throw anything away. And please, please put it up in your new home, which is beautiful, by the way. Right. Down by the river. I mean, bound by the lake. Down by the river. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I could not wait to share that with our friends who listen about um, you making your mother take down an Amish welcome mm-hmm. sign. Not because it was Amish, but because it, the font contained some sort of witchcraft yeah. sign. Right. Anyways, that is my Thanksgiving report. <laughs> well, thank you I'll for giving it that. back to you. Well, thank you for that report. We really appreciate that. Uh, well, I have no idea how to segue into uh, the interview, uh, but I hope that everybody had a happy Thanksgiving and is looking forward to a wonderful holiday season with your friends and family. Uh, you and I had a very interesting conversation this week. Um, We are traditionally Baptist, Mm -hmm. but we are ecumenical in our mindset. Oftentimes when we think about ecumenicism, we often think about that type of of ecumenicism only operating within the Protestant denomination. But we had this wonderful conversation with this great Catholic theologian and historian, who talked about the most recent synod that has been called by Pope Francis uh, that is really reforming the Catholic Church today. And what was so interesting to us about this conversation with Professor Massimo was that it resonated with us because we have been through some of these very same conversations within our own tradition. You know, it's so true because whether we're having a conversation with someone who grew up in a tradition like ours Mm -hmm. or someone who is from, you know, the Muslim faith or just a different denomination within the Christian faith, whether that's Catholic or something else across the board, Mm -hmm. you and I often reflect afterwards about how, it's such the same. Yeah. We, we are so similar in our, I don't know, I, I mean, battles, I don't know, battles, issues, the things that we face as a group of people of faith, whatever that faith tradition or non-faith tra- tradition is, is just so universal. Yeah, there's so many commonalities that we don't recognize when we're kind of in the milieu of talking theology and the practice of our faith. But when we take a step back and we look at the totality of faith across denominational as well as interfaith lines, 
we recognize that there's so many familiarities uh, within our traditions, even though they're all unique, we're all really in our basic essence. We're the having same. the same conversation. <laughs> exactly. And sometimes they involve something as silly as a font and a hex sign. And, <laughs> That's right. and maybe, maybe sometimes we need to take a step back and look at the big picture. Yeah. And, and, and keep the sign on the wall. <laughs> and Just keep, keep the, the sign, sign on, on the wall. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so stay tuned. Mitch and I are going to have a great conversation with Professor Massimo Fagioli. I've always been struck by the scriptures we avoid reading, the stories we don't want to tell in church. I'm Brett Harrison. That's what You've Never Read This, a new series from God Knows Where, is all about. We'll read from prophets and histories we've hidden from ourselves, even words of wisdom and warning from Jesus that we've likely never heard. As with everything we do here, God knows where this will lead us, but I hope you'll join me. Find God Knows Where on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. Professor Massimo Fagioli is an Italian academic, church historian, theology and religious studies professor at Villanova University, LaCroix International Columnist, and contributing writer to Commonweal. Since 2016, he has been a full professor in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at Villanova University in Philadelphia. He is the author of the book, Joe Biden and Catholicism in the United States, and the editor of the just-released Oxford Handbook of Vatican II. Professor, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, Professor, you just spent some time in Rome at the beginning of the most recent synod. So I want to begin there because the synod of the Catholic Church consists of two assemblies, one that has occurred in October of this previous year, and then the second that will conclude October 2024. These meetings are will be the biggest story in the global Catholic Church since the Second Vatican, Vatican Council uh, back in 62 to 65, besides papal elections, of course. So before discussing some of the issues, Professor, let's address the timing. Why is it important to have these meetings right now? It's important because they are really part of Pope Francis' project for the Catholic Church. Um, Pope Francis started talking about the idea of a synodal church, which in church speak means less hierarchical, less clerical, more participative. And so he, he started talking about that slowly, a little quietly in the first few months, but then things accelerated after 2015. And in 2021, he said, we need to launch a global process of consultation of all Catholics uh, in all local churches to listen to them and, and hear from them and have two assemblies to see how we can restructure, rethink a little bit how we are church. And so in 2021, the consultation process started locally, and then there were different phases, uh, diocesan, meaning at the regional level, and the national, and then continental. And then there are two, universal, uh, which means in the Catholic Church in, in, in Rome, events, one October 23 and one October 24. And so this is... A very important moment which really fits with Pope Francis' vision for the church because I think that his most important insight in, in the situation of Catholicism today is that 
the Catholic Church has become much more global, much less European, mm-hmm. much less white, much less uh, West-oriented. And so that's why these two assemblies um, uh, really are the most important moment because for the first time, they are more representative of all the components of the, the of the church, not just bishops, but also some members of the clergy, and especially laymen and laywomen with the right to vote. And so this is, I believe, the focal point of Pope Francis' pontificate. And it's, it's a very important moment that it's not really just an event, but it's a process. Uh, because how we do things says a lot about how uh, we behave, uh, what is the the intended outcome of that. And so this first uh, assembly uh, just uh, concluded a few weeks ago. And now there's this period called the, the intercession, uh, which is a second preparation, if you want, looking forward to the second assembly of October 2024. So, Professor, I mean, you mentioned the election of uh, Pope Francis, and of course, Pope Francis is the first non-European pope. Uh, did anybody see that coming? I mean, because that was quite a significant moment in the life of the global Catholic Church, the election of Pope Francis. Um, having somebody outside that traditional European cultural setting uh, really I mean, from what you're describing, kind of set the tone for some of these reforms to begin to take root. Absolutely, yes. Well, I mean, some of us did uh, see something right at, at the beginning. I remember that night. I it, it's one of my of the most vivid uh, memories that I have. Sure. Because uh, it's especially if one knows something about the history and the geography of the Catholic Church. From the very first words that he spoke from the loggia of St. Peter, one could see that something new was, was happening. And so, as as you all know, I mean, in the Catholic Church, every time there's a new pope, there's always a special excitement, okay? Mm-hmm. But this time, there's something different because, as you remember, he, he is the first pope who was elected after the the resignation of the predecessor so that was was a very sure. particular moment um but also he is the first jesuit who was elected pope something that many people thought impossible right before and the first pope not from europe or from the mediterranean space but from from latin america and so latin america has a special history in these last 50 years more or less of dealing with this idea of the church that is less hierarchical more popular and so some of us who who had known something about the particular history of the church in latin america we started thinking well this might mean that some of the insights of the of the experiences of the Latin American Church, especially after 1968, mm-hmm. will come to Rome. Yeah. Also, because as a as an archbishop and as a cardinal, uh, Jorge Mario Bergoglio was very important in one of the most important moments in the history of the Latin American Church was the 
assembly of a parecida in 2007 when he was one of the key players mm-hmm. so what's happening now in the synod is a little bit an an extension to the, the global church of what happened in latin america after 68 uh, and especially in 2007 only at a much bigger scale uh in a situation which is uh, more multicultural compared to Latin America, sure, uh, because you have Asia, you have Africa, you have uh, Europe. Uh, and so certainly what's happening right now has to do with the decision made by the cardinals to elect this, uh, this pope in the 2013. It was very consequential. And I suspect that many of them did not expect at all <laughs> any of this to happen. Well, but I love, this is part of church history. I just love what you said about, you know, the, the Catholic church is becoming more global. The leadership is becoming more global and culturally diverse. And that is that needs to be uh, demonstrated in the representation of leadership. And the Catholic church has certainly done that. So thanks for sharing that. So, Professor, let's work through some of the issues facing the Catholic church, uh, beginning with a new power distribution. Can you speak to our, our audience's predominantly Protestant, so may not understand the structure. Will you talk about the current structure and some of the reforms being considered? Sure. So what's typical of the Catholic Church is uh, a a unique role of the priesthood, uh, but even more specific of Catholicism is 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 the unique role in the church structure of the bishops. And so this is something that the role of the episcopate has always been there since uh, the, the, the beginning. But there are a few moments, especially at the beginning of the second millennium, the 11th, uh, the 12th century, but especially a second moment in the 19th and 20th century, so these last 200 years, when there has been this kind of uh, nice uh, diplomatic battle between the papacy and the bishops around this question, who's in charge? Mm-hmm. In the ultimate questions, is the is the Pope or or or, or the bishops? And so the, this is what happened between the 19th century and the 20th century, with a, a, a balance that has given mixed mixed results. If one can think about, for, for example, the whole scandal of uh, the abuse crisis, right? So this is one example that having the power concentrated in the Vatican and in the bishops uh, has not been good for dealing, tackling, being aware of that scandal. Mm -hmm. So this is the biggest issue, I mean, around power in the Catholic Church right now. And the big question is, how can this church remain faithful to its history? So we will have a, a pope in the future, we will have bishops, but how to keep that together with a more participative, a more collegial, or how we say it now, a more synodal way of being church, where, for example, some decisions are ultimately made by the the bishops or other decisions are made by the Pope, but after a process of consultation, which 
makes sense, which is part of, of our common sense, but in the Catholic Church, not always things that are common sense happen. <laughs> right. And so this is something that is really part of the picture right now. So how to I mean, incorporate in some assemblies, in some boards, in, in some rooms where some issues are decided, where the bishops and the Pope are not just pretending to listen. <laughs> And then they decide whatever they had decided already before. Right, right. Yeah, but, and their decision is informed and not just from the point of view of the, the available facts or scientific knowledge, which is important, but, but also from a spiritual point of view. Right. Mm-hmm. So what is this person or, or this kind of person telling me that I cannot see with the eyes of, of my mind or my faith right so it's more than a technocratic process that i need to know things that i don't know so i i call the experts it's not just an expertise issue okay but it's also a spiritual one okay so this is a massive issue as you can imagine because all this clerical and episcopal the uh, marker of Catholicism is very much ingrained in the law, in the structures, in the buildings, in the, in the habits. And so this needs to change because we have seen tragic results again on the abuse crisis. And this synodal process is the way to do this, uh, changing the very nature of this institution called Synod, which originally used to be just for bishops. I mean, only bishops used to be the members. Now the synod, as members that are, are bishops in majority, but as a large minority, is made of non-bishops. Mm-hmm. And so this is a massive, massive change, very risky, uh, with a lot of unknowns. Uh, but this is a boat that has sailed. <laughs> And this is the journey in which uh, uh, the Catholic Church finds itself now. I love the way you characterize uh, to actually the bishops and the Pope and papal authorities actually listening to one another instead of just pretending to listen to one another. I mean, I feel like that's We can universal. relate to that, Professor. We can relate to that. So, hey, let's just have an honest, uh, you know, forthright conversation with one another instead of going through the motions. So that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. So now let's turn to one of the issues in particular. And, Professor, for those of us who have watched the Catholic Church and you know, educated ourselves about the Catholic Church for years upon years, this would be a big reform. There is an openness to a married priesthood. Professor, is this really going to happen? Well, it's going to happen, I don't know when, but when it's going to happen, it's going to be easier than we think. Okay. Because the biggest problem is cultural of getting used to something like myself as an Italian getting used to to I don't know American pizza. <laughs> now wait a it's minute. Not, <laughs> it's not a problem of my body being allergic to that. It's a matter of, of taste. Right. And, and of tradition. So in the Catholic Church, 
there are already Catholic priests that are married of two kinds. Mm -hmm. The Eastern Catholic uh, priests of, of these churches of the Middle East or Eastern Europe, where there has always been the married priesthood. And then there are some other priests that come from the Anglican Church who were given permission to become priests in the Catholic Church, but they kept their wives' family. So it exists already, and that is evidence that the problem is not theological. It's not that God doesn't want it. Right. It's that it is culturally complicated to do it. It is financially very complicated to to do it, mm-hmm. and it is uh, a matter of uh, how to change an institution of the priesthood in the Latin Roman Church that has been celebrated for ten centuries, more or less. Mm-hmm. How to make this change? Okay, because the real problem. And I give you my example. I mean, I'm a married lay Catholic, and I could become a deacon in the Catholic Church, and one day maybe I I, I could become a, a married priest. It's not enough to give me permission. You have to convince me that I it's a good idea. Right. Right? So it's a cultural problem because right now being priests in the Catholic Church is very complicated because it's a massive pileup of jobs, which is no longer just teaching and preaching, but it's HR, it's PR, mm-hmm. it's legal issues. It's it's a so there is this possibility. I don't know when it will happen. I don't think Pope Francis. Uh, is very convinced of that. But what is has been established with, beyond any doubt is that this can be done easily. There's no new reading of scripture right. that needs to happen. Sure, sure. Right? So it's a change in the law, but especially in the mentality. Yeah. Right? And so uh, I don't know if, if the synod will decide that. It's possible. Um, what we are uh, trying to look at is how, so what is the meaning of being a minister, mm-hmm. a leader in the church of today? Because that is the real problem, number one. Mm-hmm. When we have solved that, we have solved the married priests, the women deacons, the role of women in the church, and, and so on. Yeah. Well, let's see. That's a great segue in talking about the ordination of women to the diaconate. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Explain, talk to us about why women have not been included historically in the chances that they're going to be included. So we're, what's the temperature so, on that? Right. So it's possible uh, and it's likely, I, I think, again, I don't know when, but it's likely that women will be allowed to become deacons in the Catholic Church, it is less likely, much more complicated to imagine that women can become priests in the Catholic Church for the, the reason that we have an historical precedent for women deacons. We do not have an historical precedent for women priests, first thing. Second, there are recent teachings of the popes 
until John Paul II, 1994, saying we cannot ordain women to the priesthood. And it would be incredibly complicated for any pope in this century to I mean, bypass that or say John Paul II was wrong. Okay, But third, most importantly, is this. The problem in the Catholic Church right now is what we call usually clericalism, right? So this idea that every power is... Uh, concentrated into the clergy, right? And so there's a contradiction here between the legitimate aspiration of women to have a visible authoritative role in the church, and I speak here as a father of a teenage girl, and on the other side, the problem of sending this message, if you want to count for anything in the church, you have to be a priest, (laughs) So we wow. need to, I mean, how do we do these things? In my opinion, and I've said that many uh, many times, the best thing is to ordain women to the diaconate because he, 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 it's not the priesthood. It's a third that gives you an idea of ministry and authority in the church, which is not associated to the clergy, is not associated to male power, it's different, mm-hmm. right? So this would be my thesis, but it's not just mine, it's from many people are orienting toward this. So I don't think we will going to see women priests in the Catholic Church, also because honestly, I'm very worried that this would be a step back for the role of women in the church. Because I think in in some countries it would cause a huge backlash against the Catholic Church, but against women, Mm -hmm. especially. Okay, because right now, if you are in in a Catholic Church and you listen to a bad homily, a bad preaching, you you usually say, well, this is what priesthood does to, uh, to you. It makes you boring okay (laughs) but if you listen to a bad homily delivered by a woman priest i'm afraid many men would say you see women are not up to that job Mm. so that would be a disaster so we need to find a way to promote the role of women in ways that cannot uh, blame them for the weakness of the priesthood today. So, Professor, you mentioned John Paul. Um, so, for our, again, predominantly Protestant and to be even more specific, Baptist audience uh, uh, that listens to this pod, um, for many of us who grew up in that tradition, we grew up in the tradition of Reformation, the whole concept of sola scriptura, that you know it's the you know one's free will to interpret the Bible and to apply those understandings to our faith and practice that have guided us somewhat <laughs> over the last five hundred years, but. It's always about the Bible. It's about an interpretation of the Bible. It's an argumentation about what the Bible, how the Bible is interpreted. Um, but in the Catholic context, in particular with this issue of women uh, being elevated to the diaconate or potentially the priesthood, which you have suggested that's not going to happen for a while, if ever, 
What is the authority by which the Catholic Church turns to? Is it the scriptures? Is it uh, history, tradition, culture, papal uh, edicts? What is that authority that brings the church to make these conclusions and draw these lines? So, in the Catholic Church, every theology is supposed to start from Scripture. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. Certainly, there are some issues on which the voice of the tradition, meaning everything that comes after Scripture, in the centuries after, uh, has more weight than on others. Right. So there are, and on this, on the issue of ministry, of ministry in the church, of leadership, the there is certainly a traditional interpretation that Jesus is the perfect uh, priest, is uh, and every priest in the Catholic Church has to reproduce and actually look like Jesus. That's why the uh, female exclusion, mm-hmm. which is now being, being discussed, obviously, right? So here there is a biblical argument um, that is in favor uh, of keeping the priesthood male, and there's a biblical argument that says the opposite. And so here there is a division. Famously, there was a, a report that was was commissioned by the Pope to theologians in the 1970s. Pope Paul VI asked theologians, tell me what scripture says about uh, female priesthood. And famously, this theologian says, there's no definitive answer that we can give from Scripture because right. this is not something that is defined. Okay, yeah. So here, your question is very, very important because there is uh, a certain male focus on Jesus as priest and of the priesthood of Jesus that has been used until recently in a sexist way. Mm-hmm. Okay, So, I think that right now that is under judge under discussion uh, certainly, and this is one of those examples when we can see that the Catholic Church has learned from Protestants how to relativize the tradition and give more weight to Scripture. But as you can imagine, in the Catholic Church, I mean, globally there are very different sensibilities on this and Catholics in Europe and in North America uh, are much more open to a change on this. But if you talk to a Catholic from Africa or from Asia, it has become much more complicated to reopen scripture and to say, well, actually, if we de-sexize the readings of scripture, this is what might turn out. Uh, And so we have, this is really part of the globalization of Catholicism. It's more diverse, it's more colorful, it's more more inclusive, but on other issues, it's more conservative. There's no question about this. And so it's, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, sure. So, Professor, another big issue being considered is uh, greater inclusion for LGBTQ Catholics. Um, in fact, in two, July of 2013, Pope Francis said, if they accept the Lord and have goodwill, who am I to judge them? 
So, Professor, how is this going to play out? It is it is playing out already. This is the biggest uh, indisputable change Pope Francis has has brought. Uh, it, he has gone beyond anyone's expectations on this. Even at the synod, in the weeks before the synod, during the synod, and after the, the, the first assembly, there have been pronouncements made by the Vatican uh, in favor of a new of new policies of inclusions of gay Catholics of LGBT Catholics, uh, not just as as members and worshiping members, but also in some roles like when they are called to have some function in baptisms and so on. So on this, Pope Francis is extremely committed, much more on this than on the women issue. Mm-hmm. There's no question about this. Uh, this is very, very particular of this pontificate. This is why in other states, uh, some conservative Catholics don't like Pope Francis because they think he has gone too far on that. So this is really important news uh and again though if you ask the an average african catholic bishop is not very happy about this <laughs> right because this is in some countries very controversial mm-hmm. and so this is one the single thing that has made pope francis popular or unpopular among others in the united states mm-hmm. there's no question because he has been very committed every time he has been asked that question or or questions on that issue has always been very clear, very firm. We are going to proceed on in this direction. Um, and so there's much more to do because we don't know, for example, if the rules for, for, for admitting gay seminarians in the seminaries will change. Officially, it hasn't changed, but we know that the application of this rule change varies, let's say that. I, I think this is irreversible because it is based on the acknowledgement of the fundamental dignity of every baptized, every human person. And this is one of the things that is non-negotiable, even if, if, if Pope Francis doesn't like the language of non-negotiable, but he has made clear that there's no possible dealing or on that. So, Professor, we've talked about a lot of the reforms that the Catholic Church is considering during these two synods uh, that are occurring over 23 and 24. Now, I would love to sit here and paint a rosy picture that all Catholics are behind this, uh, very supportive of these changes that Pope Francis is bringing to the Church's attention, but you and I both know that's not the case. (laughs) And so there is a strong opposition to some of these reforms that are being considered. So I want to talk about that opposition, but then I want to conclude on this. And this is a question that I'm really concerned about as we look at the trend of the Christian church in its totality, both in the global Catholic church and in Protestantism. We come from a Baptist background. For those of us who grew up a Southern Baptist in the United States, we went through the turmoil of the Southern Baptist takeover and the eventual split of the Southern Baptist Convention. But 
it even predates that to Baptist, the Civil War, slavery. We know what it means to split within a denomination. More recently, we have seen this same uh, struggle occur in the United Methodist Church, with the United Methodist Church now splitting globally. The Southern Baptist Convention, the United Methodist Church, two of the largest Protestant denominations in the globe. I'm not suggesting that this is the direction that the Catholic Church is going, but is there a concern within the Catholic Church that these reforms are going to bring about a potential, not only divisiveness, but a potential split within the Catholic Church? And I, I don't want, I don't mean to sound, you know, uh, over alarming in asking that question, but I wouldn't have said that. Uh, I wouldn't have said that prior to the Southern Baptist Convention and the United Methodist Church splitting as well. So, uh, look forward to this answer. Right now, this is a very important question. So, yes, there is a position against the synod, which comes from very clearly identifiable quarters or voices, especially in some countries like in the US or Germany. It's not global, really, but you're right. So there's this sense that uh, if the Pope or if the Synod make a, a decision uh, of a certain kind on gay Catholics or on, on women, there are threats or, or, or dangers of, of a real split. I don't think this is going to happen, really, though, because... Um, much of these opposition and of these voices now operate in in what we can call the digital church or digital continent. So their their voices, whose following is mostly virtual, mm-hmm. uh, they have a difficulty of telling people, okay. You have to follow me in this place, and we are going to create a, a new Catholic Church. This is something that historically, in the last few few centuries, that have been attempts, and they have not been successful in terms of not just numbers, but also in terms of their creativity. Of their, they have really made really small groups. So I I don't think this is going to happen. I'm really worried that something has happened already Mm. because Catholics, especially in the West, but also in other countries, they really now have a hard time calling themselves just Catholics, but they they define themselves as Catholics plus something else, liberal, progressive, uh, and so on. The adjective is more important than the noun. Right. And so this is something that has happened already. It has changed our sociability, our relationships as Catholics uh, in our uh, cities, our villages, in our schools, in our universities. It has become really something typical of the Catholic experience. And so this is not, so we should be worried, not for something that might happen, but for something that has happened already. Mm-hmm. But there are his, uh, so there's a history of schisms and of splits. Uh, I think it's unlikely to to have a, a formal 
typical split with uh, a different line of succession, a, a different pope, a different... This is, it's too complicated for the way Catholicism is structured. It, it is very heavy. It, it's very difficult to to buy away or to take away uh, a chunk of what belongs to the one Catholic Church. Right. And so a certain institutional heaviness is a burden, but also it's a, it's a warning that you might go away yourself. But if you think about taking with yourself a bunch of our people, it might be complicated, actually. <laughs> sure. Well, I, like I said, I, I hope it does not happen. Uh, I would not even have asked that question if it wasn't for the United Methodist Church uh, globally, just because more than the Baptist, they are more structured, more like Catholics than the Baptist were. And so there were a lot of those entanglements that you have mentioned, of course, not as strong or as wide as the Catholic Church uh, per se, but they are working through some of those issues. Just, I mean, and unfortunately, sometimes it always boils down to money, assets, and, you know, where does the property belong and stuff like that. So we are praying for the Catholic Church. We're praying that these meetings go swimmingly and that, as you said in your one of your first answers, that they actually listen to one another and learn from one another. So, Professor, it has has been a joy being able to talk to you and learn so much about the Catholic tradition, what's going on within the Catholic Church. But before we let you go, we've got one last question for you. So, Professor, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of your work and our conversation today, what is your more to tell? More to tell is good faith in this sense that the synodal process, the synod in the Catholic Church is an attempt to reignite the faith, but also in this very basic sense of trust. So what's typical of, of our age is not just the loss of faith in Jesus Christ, which is a very serious issue, but it's, it's loss of faith in anything that's not myself, mm. <laughs> of, of trust in anything that's not myself. This is a, it's, it's making our, our life difficult to live, I think. And so we really need to look into ourselves. How can we live without basic faith, basic trust in our fellow human beings, in our neighbors, in our fellow citizens, in our neighbors also uh, in other nations, countries? Without that, I think um, AI... ChatGPT, they are minor threats <laughs> if we don't have that basic trust. And so good faith is, is how I think we as persons of faith should be go about looking at the next future. Well, Professor, thank you so much. What a great way to end our conversation today. We really appreciate it. And thank you so much for being our guest this week on Good Faith Weekly. And you are welcome back anytime, my friend. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, Missy and I just finished an incredible conversation with Professor Massimo, who is a professor at Villanova, but also just a really outstanding resource for what is going on within the Catholic Church, in particular, 
the important reforms that are occurring within the Catholic Church. So, Missy, what stood out to you in our conversation with Massimo? Because it was fascinating to me, but I understand I'm a church nerd. You, yes, you are a church nerd, <laughs> among other things. Okay, so I want to say, I know if, if our listeners listen to the intro, they will recall that I called you out for yes. um, the sign, the hex sign and your mother's welcome sign. But I, I'm going to call my family, specifically my mom, and I feel terrible my mom passed last spring and this is no shade on her. I feel like this is just indicative of the culture we grew up in. We all I grew up in. Yeah, and so I'm just giving an cultures. example of something yeah, that was yeah, impactful sure. to totally me growing up. Yeah. So I mentioned, I think last, I think it was last week when we interviewed, um, Imam, Imad and Chauncey. Mm -hmm. And I talked about how through, our current jobs and situations, we have become friends and, and built a community of, of folks that I never would have imagined growing right. up. Sure. And I think this is another one of those interviews that as silly as it is, mm -hmm. was impactful to me because of the way I grew up. And I remember again, mom, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I was in the sixth grade mm -hmm. when I had a boyfriend Mm -hmm. who was Catholic. Oh, wow. And I remember my mom being tense about it. Sure, yeah. And, I, and you grew up in Texas. You grew up a Southern Baptist. Right. So in a small of, town, all of, that checks all of yeah, the things. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So again, no shade to my mother. No, no, it it's just, just the culture. was... Yeah, you, exactly. You it, yeah. it was the, It was how, how we... The culture we were in. Not that it makes it okay. It just it was what it was. Right. Um, and then I also remember as a child having a friend who was Catholic and like the, just it being an interesting, I remember when my mom finally let me go to mass with her, mm -hmm. like that was a big thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm not sure where I'm going with this other than to say that, like we said in the opening, these conversations are happening across denominations well, across faith and i think it's so interesting but oh i do remember where i was going with this what i was going to say about this is something that professor fajoli said in the conversation was so um relatable to me because it's something that you said to me early on in our relationship and I'm going to confess, now that I've thrown you under the bus for your satanic <laughs> hex symbol on a welcome sign. I mean, this is our Catholic episode, so confession is a good thing. I'm in the confessional. <laughs> Are we? In, am I in the confessional? You're that in the confession. That, so wait, that means tell it's, me, sister. That means it's confidential, sins? right? Okay. <laughs> sure, absolutely. So early on in our relationship in our marriage, when we would have discussions about women preaching. Mm -hmm. And you know, like, I'm the one who had an issue with this. I do remember that very clearly. You did not. I did not. And I remember you saying to me, you have to admit that this is not theological. It's cultural. Mm -hmm. 
And I had to say, you're right. Excuse me? Could you I know, say that again? This is two episodes in a row where these, <laughs> these words have come out of my mouth. But I have never forgotten that. And I've always tried to measure that mm-hmm. and acknowledge that and at least own it. Yeah. The times where we have to admit that certain practices, certain um, rules, edicts, whatever, norms Mm -hmm. are cultural versus theological. And so it was interesting for me to hear from Professor Fagioli about and to hear him say that exact thing when he was talking about uh, specifically about married priests. And he says, the problem is not theological. It is cultural. And I feel like as a people, whether you're of faith or not of faith can all admit to that, Mm -hmm. that when something we have to acknowledge that is just say, you know what? I mean, how many, how many, Baptist business meetings have you been in where they're like, well, we not, we've always done it this way, right? Right, 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 right. Okay, so that's what we call cultural. Yeah. And as we can own it, then you can you can look at an issue from a different lens. Mm-hmm. That is what I have to say. And I, that is an incredible and fascinating conversation. I think we need to have. We probably need to have a. Th- a systematic theologian come on the show uh, to talk about the tension between uh, biblical truth, cultural truth, and universal truth. And even within the Bible to admit where truths are cultural, like you said, and historical. The ultimate question is, what is truth? All right. So that's next episode. (laughs) We don't have time for that. Exactly. But I think that's a fascinating conversation. and, And those are the issues that we are struggling with. That's, that's the overall issue that we're struggling with as we wrestle with these particular issues. Now, what I really am interested in kind of diving back into is the conversation you brought up about kind of the biases towards Catholicism in your youth. Okay. Because that is not unique to you. You've already called me out in the introduction uh, regarding my fundamentalism. But oh, I've got lots of notes for future episodes. <laughs> sure you do. We'll circle back. I'm sure you do. <laughs> but in particular with Catholicism, that I was taught as a young person that Catholicism was uh, evil. Oh, that absolutely. It was contrary to the pure, genuine faith mm-hmm. of Christianity. To the extent that, and this, and again, I grew up not only in fundamentalism, but in right wing evangelicalism that believed in premillennialism. And Say that again. Premillennialism. <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> premillennialism. Yeah, that too. <laughs> um, that there was going to be this antichrist that ruled the world. Well, I was literally taught as a youth in my teenage years that that antichrist that was, the pope. was the pope. Oh, absolutely. So here's the tension that I had as a young person. I was being taught the, that the Catholic Church was heretical and satanic. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm saying this with tears in my eyes, the guy I played baseball with who hit right behind me, who was our catcher, who was a dear, dear friend of mine, was Catholic. And I had to figure out, as a young person, what that meant to me. I was being taught something by my church, but having a completely different experience on the baseball field. And I take it back to the question, what is truth? For me, truth wasn't in the church. Truth was on the baseball diamond. And that changed me forever. And that's when I began to question my evangelical roots and my fundamentalism because of those kind of relationships. And, you know, and I'll use his name, John was not the only Catholic on our team, mm -hmm. but he embodied the struggle I was having internally, theologically. And so I think about what is going on in the Catholic Church today and the significance of these reforms. And while us as Protestants have been championing these reforms for 500 years now and continue to do so day in and day out, pushing the church to be more progressive in their idealism and the theological convictions and practices, the Catholic Church is still part of my universe. It's still part of who I am, of my identity, because I have friends and family members who are part of that, that tradition. I would say humanity is part of your it's identity. Like, yeah, I mean, that's something we, yeah, I think yeah. you and I are very comfortable in saying. Mm -hmm. And also when you said, you know, Protestants have been pushing for, I would say Protestants haven't gotten oh, no. it right. I mean, hundred, hundred percent. Let's yeah, don't, yeah, let's don't yeah. kill carrying the yeah, victory we, yeah, flag. Yeah, 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 like, we took that flag and then, you know, just. We suppressed it in our own ways. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's just interesting for me to look back with a lens of, like you said, the kid on the field or in the classroom, or like for me, my neighbor that I was good friends with and trying to make it make sense. And I were in the mental gymnastics that mm. are required in order to, I, I, I well, don't even I, know what we're looking for. So, I mean, no, no, I know exactly what we're looking for. We're trying to ask the question of, what is truth? And again, this is going to go beyond this conversation, which we need to probably explore later on in later episodes. But is truth found within an interpretation of an ancient text in our circumstance, the Bible or the Quran or the Torah or whatever sacred text there is? Or is truth found in tradition, meaning that mm. there are historical precedents for us to believe and act the way we do. We like to hang on to tradition. Right. I mean, we just do. Or, or, and this is the big or that will paddle this boat out from the shore. Is it about human relationships, human, human connectedness? And to me, that, that is one of the most radical things that Jesus ever said. Not as a Christian, not as a Jew, but just as a 
humanist, that it was about relationships, that religion, that faith about life is all about relationships. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is the most important part of everything we do. And to be able to affirm those relationships and our counterparts in those relationships in those callings that they have in life, whether that is to be a priest, to be a preacher, to fulfill whatever you feel is your God-given calling. Our job is to be an encourager and an affirmer of those callings and to simply love people. And to me, that is what we're, that's, that's what we're trying to get at. I agree. I think it's just, again, I'll circle back to kind of attempt to wrap this up because I feel like this could go very much deeper in this conversation. Yeah, I didn't expect this to go where it went, but I'm glad it did. But again, with I think it was last week's or maybe two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Episode with Imam Imad, Mm -hmm. and we talked a little bit about that, just the commonalities that we have, the common issues that we have. And the things going on within the, the Catholic Church that, that like it or do have a global impact. Mm-hmm. We can't we can't deny oh, that. One hundred percent. Absolutely. That's why these conversations are important. It's important to follow these stories. Um, but the struggles, the commonality of the struggles, the things that we wrestle with, and again, I circle back to the things we need to admit are tradition or cultural as opposed to theological. Cause like you said, if you look mm. at the life of Jesus, what he's telling us is love God, love others mm. period. Yeah. He's relational. That's what he does. And if you look at other prophets and other faith in other faiths, that's the, I feel like the baseline mm-hmm. is we are to work to love others and to make an impact in the world for good. Yeah. Let me conclude with this little story from Fort Worth, Texas, and probably the one in the most influential professor I ever had at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Dr. Boo Heflin. I had a feeling we were about to hear a Boo (laughs) Heflin story. (laughs) And he tells the story about his journey to affirming women in ministry. And he, he always knew as a biblical scholar that, I mean, the biblical argument is simple. God calls women to preach and to Absolutely. be prophets. I mean, just it's in the text. I'm all for it, folks, <laughs> by the way. I don't know if I, I, I can't remember if I clarified that in the beginning, but I'm theologically, I mean, I'm, I'm all for it. Sure. This uh, was like 20 years ago that I was. Anyways. But he was having these young female students come into his office conveying their calling to him and he would say you know i I agree with your calling i I think it's legitimate god has called you to be a pastor to be a prophet Um, but you're going to have cultural problems with this calling and at times would gently encourage them to take another path and i'll never forget this till the day i die boo said this He came to the conclusion one day in his office, it was clear as day, when he said, God spoke to him directly and said, Boo Heflin, 
who the hell are you to decide whom I call and whom I do not call? And for Boo, that was it. Mm-hmm. Why do I get to decide? This is between the individual and their and creator. And their God, yeah. Period. This is relational. Why do I get to interject myself into that relationship? I have no right to do so. And to me, that solidified my view on so many things. <laughs> so. Yeah, you could apply that to anything. Who are we Who are we to, to judge, to decide, to all these things? I think we always have to keep our personal selves in check. Where are my biases coming into play here? Yeah, 100%. Well... We talked about the synod that's going on. <laughs> so back to the synod that's going on in the Catholic Church, in the Catholic guys. Church. But this is why it's so important for institutions like the Catholic Church, for denominational entities, to have these conversations because it spawns other conversations for us to have between each other and within our own hearts and minds. It challenges us and hopefully it inspires us to grow in some capacity. So that's just why we do what we do. And to do better. Exactly. We always need to be always striving to do, to do better. better. Well said. Can't say it any better. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. We hope that you have a great week, and we will be back next week. Until then, keep living good faith. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.